The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Well, good morning. We're doing the order a little bit different this morning because I think the text that we're looking at this morning necessitates for us as we uh, hear what God has to say through Jude, it necessitates a response to Him as to what He says. Sometimes uh, it's been noted that, that we get our worship services backwards. We come in, we sing the songs, and then the the, the worship through the Word, and we just kind of leave on that. And this morning, I want you to pay attention just with an attuned heart to the things that, that, J, that Jude says to us uh, as he describes himself, he describes us, and then he gives us a description or a prescription of those things that who we are in Christ and the value uh, that we have in that relationship of His grace and His goodness extended to us. And then I want us to go back into worship, meditating on these truths that, that Jude gives to us and respond to Him and give Him glory in that. I've selected to go through the book of Jude right now. It's a very short book. It's only 26 verses, and I don't know that in my lifetime I've ever heard anybody preach on the book of Jude, uh, but, but it's a very appropriate message, I think, to the times that we are in right now as Jude writes to the body of Christ. And he begins by saying this. We're only going to look, look at the two ver- first two verses this morning. He says, Jude, you can follow along there with me, Jude. Um, by the way, if you're not sure where that is in your Bible, go to the book of Revelation and take a quick left. And it's just before the book of Revelation. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. He's writing to the body of Christ, and this morning, uh, by the Holy Spirit, as we are reading the word that the Holy Spirit inspired Jude to write down, you can receive this greeting from him, because he, he professes and calls out to all of us who are believers this morning that, that you are called that you are beloved in God the Father, and that you are kept for Jesus. And then he says in verse 2, this is the prescription, if you will, after, after he has said, this is who we are, this is the description of who we are, that we're chosen, we're beloved by the Father, and that we are kept for Jesus. Now, prescribing to us this beautiful thing, now may mercy peace and love be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by the Holy Spirit this morning, you would speak to our hearts, God, that, Father, every single person in the hearing of this word, God, Lord, would be edified, God would be encouraged, would be strengthened, would come to a realization, Lord, of the greatness of who we are now in Christ Jesus and all that you have done for us, but God, ultimately for your glory, what you have done. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd speak to our hearts this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's been said that we can learn a lot about a person in the way that they describe themselves. 
Have you ever been in a setting where the, the facilitator says, okay, now I want everybody to go around the room and, and take just a minute to tell us who you are. Uh, just give three quick things. And when he says three quick things, you know some bozo is going to give 30 things, right? Uh, but he says, just give us three quick descriptions of who you are. And somebody may start the conversation, I'm so-and-so, and I'm the executive CEO of this corporation. Well, that tells us a lot about who the person is. And in some way, it tells us a lot about what they value about themselves. Another one may stand up and say, uh, my name's J-Mo. I've, I've been married to my dear and precious wife for 37 years. I have two great grown adult children, but more importantly, let me tell you about my three grandkids, right? And that kind of tells you that, that that's the focus maybe in that person's life. When I get a friend request from someone on Instagram or from Facebook, I usually look at their profile and who they are, and I can tell a lot about a person in their most recent post, right? And I could tell whether or not, yeah, I'd like to be that friend, or I say, delete request. <laughs> well, Jude begins his letter here writing to the church, and I want us to notice first how he describes himself. There are two things that he says here. He says, number one, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And number two, he says, I am the brother of James. The first thing that he says is, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That seems to be that it was preeminent in Jude's mind that, that he had sold himself out. Some of your, your uh, translations translate that word servant, uh, slave. And indeed, it is the same word that's used to describe one who was a slave. Now, some of your translations may say, I'm a bond servant. And in that day, there were basically two classifications of those who might be considered slaves. Number one, there were those in Rome and other places who were, who were placed in bondage as a slave to be servitude, not by their own will, but, 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 but taken captive and possessed, which, which God never condones in Scripture, and, and it should never be condoned. It's, it's a horrible thing. But, but there was a second type of slave, the word slave that's used, is one who um, may have an indebtedness to an individual where they have borrowed or they owe them something and they're unable to pay it back with the means that they have, and they would place themselves in servitude to that other person in such a time in order to work off the debt that they paid. Uh, now, that is a type of slavery, if you will, that God does condone in His Word, and He placed provisions in the law to make sure that that individual who is working off, some of you are, are bond servants to your credit card, right? You, you've taken and you've extended credit from the bank, and you're working off to pay off. Well, that's a similar kind. And there are laws and regulations that are in place to keep the lender from violating you or mistreating you. And that's the sense of the word that James uses here to describe himself as a slave. And a servant, and the word really would mean a bond servant. And what a bond servant was was when someone had completed their indebtedness. If I owed Harold uh, for the lunch that he bought me this last week, and and once I had paid that off, then I would willingly choose 
to be to continue to be his servant or to be his slave and give loyalty to him. I would be given my freedom, set free from that debt that I owed, but then I would choose to go on and serve him. And this is the way Jude describes himself, and really it's the way every one of us as believers are. That Christ has redeemed us, He has purchased us, He has set us free from the bondage of sin, and now with a willing heart in response to His grace and His goodness and all that He has done for Him, we say, Jesus, I want to continue to serve You. I want to continue to allow You to be my master. In every step that I take in life, I am going to submit to what Your will is and not my own will. You see, one who had given himself over as a bondservant to their master, they, they, had, they had said that, you know, if my will is not first place, but my master's will is first place. Can I get an amen to that? Let me pause for just a minute. Wednesday night, I was watching an independent Baptist online, and I loved it. You know why? Because I heard a lot of, amen, brother, preach it. So you're free to say, amen, brother, preach it. If you disagree, just be quiet. But he, he had chosen to allow the master's will to pre, be preeminent. And, and my question as I look at Jude describing himself as a bondservant, would it be true of me if I began a letter to you by saying, J-Mo, the slave of Jesus Christ? Is my will completely surrendered to Him, where that the only authority that I have is His authority that He might have given to me? That the only decisions that I would make in my life would be those that He would ordain for me to make? Or am I, am I one that says, I want to be your servant, but Jesus, I want to go ahead and make my own decisions. That's not what the word means. The word means that he is subservient to his master. And not only is he subservient to a master, and it's not just for a simple time frame, because in that custom, in that day, when one made themselves a bondservant, they would place their ear upon a doorpost, and an earring would be driven through the lobe of their ear, indicating that they had willingly surrendered to the authority and the will of their master. And everywhere that they went, they were identified, by that piercing in their ear that they were a bondservant to a master. And my question is to myself, am I that? And not only was it for a temporary period of time, or it wasn't for a temporary period of time, but when they made that commitment, it was a lifelong commitment. It wasn't, well, I'll, I'll, I'll relinquish my will to you for a certain time until there's something that you wish for me to do or, or not to do, doesn't agree with me, and I rip the earring off and say, I'm no longer your bondservant. And then when things get rough, I say, Jesus, okay, I want to be your servant, and I'll put the earring back in. It wasn't one of those. It was an earring that was driven into the lobe, never be removed. And it was unto death. And that's how Jude describes himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. When I think of that word and, and what it meant, I can't help but see that that flies in the face of the average Christian in America and their mentality and attitude. Do I hear an amen to that? Jesus, we want to follow you. We want to be your disciple until... 
Jesus will follow you wherever you say we go until, and Jesus reminds us, he says, when you put your hand to the plow, he says, you don't turn around to look back to see where you came from. It's a going forward with Him, and, and, and God calls us to be that to Him. And can I say this? He is not a mean, He's not a cruel slave master, is He? I couldn't think of one more loving and more gracious and more forgiving than to surrender my life to in servitude. Look at the second way He describes Himself. I saw something in this this week. He, he defines himself as the brother of James. Now, his readers would have known exactly who he was talking about. He was talking about the uh, James, the James, who, who wrote the book of James, who was the, the, the pastor, if you will, in all of the church of Jerusalem, very pivotal in the early decisions of the church in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem council. James was present, and he was known as the leader among Christians. He had a big name in Christendom. And here Jude uses the phrase, the brother of James. There were two other brothers, one with prominence within the church and the other one with less prominence like Jude is here. We wouldn't really know of Jude except he had not written this little letter in the New Testament. The other one was Andrew, the brother of Peter. Now, we all know what Peter went on to do, right? He's the one that got the vision from God. He carried the gospel initially to the Gentiles against, uh, against the thinking of all of the Messianic Jews that, that he would go to the Gentiles. And Andrew uses the same phrase, Andrew, the brother of Peter. And what I saw in this is that both Jude and Andrew did not have a problem of being second fiddle. Their brothers carried the prominence, but they had no problem, if you will, taking the shadow or the background because they too had sold themselves out to Jesus and they were his bondservant, not the bondservant of Peter and, 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 and uh, James and not the one just trying to come on their tailgate to get a little bit of prominence himself, but they recognized and realized that, you know, if Jesus wants me to be second, if Jesus wants me to be third, if Jesus wants me to be last, that's okay with me because He is my master. Can I hear an amen to that? It reminds me of those things that Jesus said. Jesus said, he who is last shall be what? All right. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, learn to be Oh, <laughs> learn to be the servant of, some of you need to go back to children's ministry right now and learn these things. If you don't want to be great in the kingdom of God, he says, then learn to be the servant of all. Not just the ones we want to serve, not just the ones that are easy to serve, but, but learn to be the servant of all. Jesus says, it is better to serve than to be served. You see, Jesus modeled this for God, very God, became a man. 
and said, hey, I didn't come to be served, but I, I came to serve. Same word that's used there. Subservient to the will of the Father, laying aside his rights to deity, that he was God, would lay those aside so that he might serve, so that we might have the hope of eternal salvation. Somebody say, glory, thank you, Jesus, for that. It, 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 it's very contrary to our mindset because the world tells us, right, the whole system of the world tells us that we're, we really haven't arrived until we have become what? At the top. Jesus, when he was talking to James and John, the other pair of brothers, John who wrote the Gospel of John, and, and they were fighting and and they, they were arguing about who was going to sit at Jesus' right hand and which one was going to be at the left. And, and they even pulled Mama into the argument and said, Hey, Mama, you're related to Jesus. Go tell, put a good word into Jesus for us. Because when you come into your kingdom, we want to be somebody in your kingdom. It's not the way it works in his kingdom, right? He says, I'll tell you this. He says, the Gentiles love their places of authority, and they love to lord it over others. But it's not so in the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God, pyramid structure, the organizational chart, the kingdom of God's organizational chart is that it's a, inverted. It's turned upside down where the greatest, he says, is the servant of all. So he describes himself this way. It's interesting to note as well that, that neither James nor Jude believed in Jesus until after his resurrection and ascension. As a matter of fact, John tells us in his gospel, chapter 7, verse 35, even his brothers did not believe in him. Mark chapter 3, we saw this when we were going through the book of Mark when when uh, the, the Pharisees were claiming, you know, Jesus is kind of out of his mind. He's a madman. And, and we need to kind of take him and let's put him into special care. Let's put him into a home for a while so that he can get his psyche right. That even his mother and his brothers were there with him. And the, the literal word that's in the New Testament says that they believed that he was deranged. But it was after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus that both James and Jude turned to put their faith in not their brother, but their faith in the risen Christ, God, very God. Another side note of this is that family didn't give them privilege, did it? it just because they, they were brothers of Jesus or half-brothers because, well, we, you know, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But, but they didn't consider the fact that they were relatives of Jesus was a, a ticket into the kingdom of God. And can I tell you this morning that, that our ticket into the kingdom of God does not rest on our mama, doesn't rest on our daddy, doesn't rest on our brother, doesn't rest on any blood relationship because the Bible tells us that we must all be born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. He goes on to begin to list in this first verse three things that he describes of us, believers, the descriptions. He says that we are called, beloved, and kept. 
we kind of gloss over this word call because sometimes we don't want to get into the argument or the debate of, of one being called or chosen. But the Bible very clearly teaches that those of us who have trusted Christ for our Savior, we are the called. We have been chosen by Him. We didn't choose Him, but He chose us, right? Let's look at this word call. Both Paul and Peter use this word to describe us believers. Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 7, as he begins the introduction in that letter, he says, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. That he called us, the same word can be interchanged, called or chosen. But God in his infinite wisdom, in his sovereignty, I, don't, I hadn't figured it all out yet. Can anybody say amen to that? And I never will. All I know is the Bible says that he called me unto himself. He called you unto himself so that we might become saints. And the only way we become that is through the imputed righteousness of Jesus to us. And we, he didn't call us because there was anything we did that was phenomenal, right? He called us. And, and I don't get hung up on the debate any longer. You understand what I'm saying? All I know is that for some reason God called me, God chose me, He saved me, and the only thing I can do is say, God, thank you so much because I know what a wretched scum I am, and you saved me. He saved us. He says, you've been chosen Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, set apart, made holy in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place. And so the calling in our lives is that God first does the calling. You heard his voice one day, Reagan. Reagan, Steve, Steve, and your heart was open, and you recognized that you were separated from him because of your sinfulness, and you said, God, how could you love me? And he said, here's a way that I've made so that you might be in relationship to me through your son, Jesus. Will you accept that? Will you trust that? And you said, yes, Lord. And now he saved you, and he set apart you unto him. And if that's happened to you in this room this morning, then clap and say, thank you, Jesus. Now, watch this. He has chosen us, and in His choosing, the purpose or the nature of that choosing is to make us holy. Because if He does not make us holy, then He cannot be in relationship to us. Notice what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.15. He says, but as He who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. Now, we read that and we think, wait a minute, I'm failing miserable. Anybody else with me? Here's the beautiful thing about it. That He has called us, and when He called us and He saved us, He made us holy. We've been made the holiness of God in Christ Jesus. 
I'm going to do for a minute what, what some of our brothers do in other churches. Turn to the person next to you and said, he has made you holy. Y'all sounded like a bunch of white folks. Turn to the person next to you and say, he has made you holy. And it's in the power of the Holy Spirit in that process of continuing to sanctify us that He sanctifies us and we grow in holiness. It's kind of funny. The, the, the longer I'm a believer, and I, I don't know how many years, 36 years now, something like that. Um, I know I'm not where I once was, <laughs> but the more work He does in me... <laughs> It's, I know how far I've got to go, right? Thank God for His grace. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Don't work for your salvation. That's not the right translation. It's not the, we mistranslate that. It's work out your salvation. He has made you holy. Now he says, work that out in your daily living. Desire to be made holy. It concerns me, and I'll just put it in the first person. It concerns me in my walk sometimes when I don't have a concern for growing sanctification. See, I don't mind saying that because every one of us share in that at times, right? Can I see any hands raised? Yeah, yeah. But that God would change us and grow us in righteousness and holiness so that we might be in closer fellowship with Him because the thing that separates you and I from fellowship with Him is our sin. The relationship will always be there. It's for all of eternity, but our fellowship can be broken because of our sin. And then he says in verse 13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for His good pleasure. You see, I can't will myself into working out my salvation and holiness. I, if I try to do it myself, it's flesh doing it, and flesh only produces flesh. But I have to depend, and you have to depend, on the Holy Spirit of God to work in us, for it is He that works in you to will and do according to His good pleasure. It's His work in us. Let me read the last verse on this. I could get on this all day. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you will never fail. 2 Peter 2.10. Let me pause for just a minute and ask this question. Is He calling you today? Maybe you're here in the sanctuary. Maybe you are watching on Facebook Live. Maybe later you're watching YouTube as this is coming about. But let me pause and ask the question right now. Is He calling you to Himself today? Is He calling your name? Do you hear Him calling you unto Himself? And, and then I would, I would say... What the writer of Hebrews says, as he quotes Psalm 95, he says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Respond and say yes to Jesus. 
That can work in the means of salvation where He calls us, but it can work in the believer's life as well. Is there something that God is calling you to today? Then say yes to whatever that is. Let's look at the second word he used. He uses the word beloved or loved in or by God. When he tells us that we are the beloved, it can be taken these different ways. Number one is that, is that we're dearly loved. He doesn't just say that to the loved. He says, but to the beloved. More than just loved, we are dearly loved. It has the idea of that he loves us dearly and, and he has great affection for us. He has great affection for you and for me. It means that he loves us dearly. Listen to what John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. I'm a dad. I'm a granddaddy. And I love my wife dearly. And we've talked about this, and she loves me dearly. I hope I don't get into trouble, honey. But we realized one day we were finally honest and talking about this love that we have for our children. And we said, you know what? It, 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 it's, it's more love than I have for you. <laughs> she said it and I said it too, so I'm okay. She'll forget she said it. If you're a parent, do you understand what I'm talking about? There's that love that you have for your children. And now that I have grandchildren, my kids don't mean a thing to me anymore. I love those grandbabies. Behold what manner of the love the Father has given that he should, we should be called the children. Of God. Folks, we've been chosen. We are the beloved. We're loved by God. And then he says in verse in that same verse that we are kept for or by Jesus Christ. This word kept means to cause a state to continue. To recover. It's the same word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 37, when, when he was, he's talking to those in their state of marriage. And, and he uses the phrase, he said, if you have decided in your heart to keep her, to, to cause her to be your wife, speaking of a lifelong relationship, and when he says that we are kept in Jesus Christ, Paul echoes it when he says in Romans chapter 8, there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Let me put it bluntly. If he has called you, he has saved you, 
He has justified you. He has sanctified you. He has made you holy. He has given you the righteousness of God in Christ. And it's all of His doing. It cannot be undone. So if you're here this morning and you've trusted Christ. And you are worried about or wondering. Is there anything I can ever do? Is there anything that anybody else can do? Is God going to fall out of love with me? The emphatic answer is no and no and no. You are kept for all of eternity. That's cause to praise Him. Now look what he says. After he gives this description. He, he gives us a triad of prescription. The reason I chose prescription is because that's what the doctor gives you, right? This is the prescription. This is how he describes that you are in Christ. And now this is what he has given to you and to me. He has given us mercy, peace, and love. He prays here, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That word multiplied has the idea of ten to the 10th power. You remember how that worked when you were in algebra? Some of you got to think back a long time ago, right? But 10 times 10 equals what? Phil, you're the CPA. You got me, okay? 10 times 10 equals 100. What would be the next step, Phil? 1,000. And what would be the next step? What would be the next step? I knew I'd get you to pause, Okay. He says it's, it's infinite. That, that mercy, love, and peace are multiplied over to us infinitely. You can look back in the last several weeks. We've talked about the mercy of God and we've talked about the love of God. This morning I just want to focus on the peace of God. The Bible speaks a lot about peace. And there are three ways that, that the New Testament in particular speaks of peace. We are living in a culture in these times right now that, that we are dying for desperately wanting peace, right? Brother against brother, race against race, no peace in the home, moms and dads, no peace with their kids separated. And can I tell you this, that I don't care what song Coca-Cola sings on national TV, it is not going to bring about peace. Because God is the author of peace, and real peace only comes from Him. You see, this word peace means the absence of strife. And until Jesus returns, and this is not a fatalistic attitude. We've seen it since the dawn of history. Until Jesus returns, there will not be peace. It's the result of a sin-infected world. But He has called us to be peacemakers, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. As if we extend the peace of God to others as we have now received peace from God and peace with God. So church, let me encourage you that in these times, 
especially on social media. I, I know I pick on that a lot, but I see a lot. That the way to respond to hate is not coming back with the rhetorical same kind of answer on the other side. Oh me or oh my. The way to come back is in the opposite spirit, the spirit that the world does not understand. And that is peace. That peace that we have received from God. He has called us to something greater And if we settle for less and fall into the enemy's trap, oh, God, help us. But how is the world in turmoil going to know peace except the body of Christ, the people of God, demonstrate and extend peace even if it rubs me the wrong way? Go ahead. Three ways that peace is used. Number one. Is that, is that there's peace from God. God is the author of peace. A couple of verses real quick that, that demonstrate that, that God is peace. Paul says in Colossians 1-2, he says, grace to you and peace from God the Father. It only comes from Him. John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. One of Billy Graham's book, he writes this. He says, peace can be experienced only when we have received divine pardon. What's he saying there? He's saying that until we as individuals, as human beings, experience God's divine pardon where He forgives us of our sin and there is no longer that hostility between us and Him. Not that He's made us His enemies, but the Bible says that we have made Him our enemies. Until that peace is experienced and we're reconciled to God, we will never be able to live out and demonstrate and live in peace. You see, first of all, there's the peace with God. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, he says, For in Him, this is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Peace between us and God only comes through the blood of Jesus and the cross. That that is that divide that tears down that dividing wall where there was once division. God has now reconciled us to Him in peace. The second way the Bible talks about peace is, is that there is a peace of God. So there's a peace from God, but then there is the peace of God. Notice Isaiah says in Chapter 26, verse 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So in other words, when our mind is stayed on God, when our mind is stayed on the things of God, that's why today, gosh, guys, we need so much more of a dose of the Word of God every day in our lives. Because if we're feeding ourselves off the media, if we're feeding ourselves off the news, if we're feeding ourselves off social media, it will rob us completely of the peace that we can have of God. 
Colossians 3 verse 15, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body. Let the peace of God rule. I've got to read the context of that verse. Can, can you all bear with me just a little bit? Paul writes, and he says back in verse 12 of that same passage, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones who are holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, say, you had a complaint against me yesterday, darling. I'm, I'm reading to you, okay? I deserved it, though. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The structure of this passage is that the peace of God will not reign and rule in our hearts unless we are practicing the things that precede the verse. Remember the definition of peace is an absence of strife. And so where there's strife in any area where we're not exhibiting these characteristics by the the the, the gifting of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit that is placed in our life, and we're not yielding to that, but rather yielding to the flesh, there will not be peace, and we'll not experience the peace of God. I've talked about peace with God, peace from God, but now lastly, let me say this, that there is a peace with God that we all have to have before we can truly experience peace from God and the peace of God. And that peace with God only comes through the shed blood of Jesus. We were all once not children of the Father, but children of the devil. The Bible describes us that way. We were all once enemies of God, and again, not that He made us his enemies, but we made ourselves his enemies by rebelling against God. And until there is an acknowledgement in the individual's heart that they have sinned against a holy God and that they have desired to live their life in their own will And not had a desire to trust what he has done in response to that call. Trust the blood of Jesus. Not only for the forgiveness of sin, but recognizing that he has every right to ownership and lordship in our lives. One will not have peace with God. So if you're here or you're, again, watching, if you've not made peace with God, can I tell you there's only one thing that you can do, and that's to respond to His call and His invitation to trust Him. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.